0: Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's Family and Associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Hi everyone, welcome to Tomorrow's News. In Season 2 of our podcast series, we will be bringing on regular expert guests who will be sharing with our community their perspectives on the market. Today, we have invited very special guest, Rashid Saludin, to join us on the show. Rashid comes with an epic list of credentials. He is a pre-seed tech and crypto angel investor with over 25 investments and five primary advisories. Rashid was a postdoc in finance, teaching economic history and investment at the University of Cambridge after receiving his PhD and also holds a master's from LSE. He has written two books and is published in several tier one academic journals on finance and financial history. His academic specialties are in US interwar financial markets and the 2008 global financial crisis. He founded and ran a distressed mortgage hedge fund from 2008 and 2002-2018. And Rashid can now add podcaster to his CV, co-hosting a weekly investment podcast called At the Rotterdam. We are very excited to have Rashid join us from Toronto this morning. And now I will turn the mic to Gavin, who is going to lead what I know will be a very interesting discussion today on the dominance of China and the Yuan's potential as a reserve currency. Good morning, Gavin and Rashid.
1: Good morning. Thank you for that. Wow, that's a great intro. You're going to want to uh, keep that one for posterity, Rashid. Rashid is also an amazing athlete. He didn't put all of these athletic achievements on there. Uh, maybe he's fittest hedge fund manager as well in uh, his many skills. So he and I have known each other so long it doesn't even bear mentioning, and it's a great pleasure to have him on today. And so we had a conversation over email and then in, in person about something that I think is a little bit of a popular concept on Twitter, it's a popular concept in the financial press. And it's this idea that inevitably the US dollar is going to buckle under the weight of debt or other elements. It's the end of the dominance of the U.S. dollar, and it's potentially the rise of China, the rise of the yuan. And famously, and Rashid pointed out to me that he was reading Ray Dalio's book and, and that got this conversation started recently, he said, "You know, we're in a world where money, as we know it, is in jeopardy. We're printing too much, and it's not just the United States. Saudi Arabia is selling oil in renminbi and then buys things from China in renminbi. They're going to hold more renminbi. So- With that, I think it's important to turn it over to Rashid and say, Rashid, do we need to be really concerned here if you're holding U.S. dollars that this is the precipice, it's all about to end and something's about to change?
2: You hit so many good points, and it really is like the perfect storm of news, right? Because everybody, it seems, is wishing the U.S. dollar loses its preeminence, and that includes Americans themselves these dollar bears on Wall, uh, hard money bulls on Wall Street, the MAGA, make America great again. America is going downhill. And then you've got all these like failed states who have been banned from the US dollar, like Iran and let's say Russia, and others worry the same thing could happen to them. So everybody seems to want the US dollar to lose its dominance. And so it's, and because doom, macro doom sells, You see it everywhere from Fox News all the way to the Wall Street Journal. And when everybody's thinking the same thing, and a lot of smart people, including, like you said, Ray Dalio, the largest hedge fund manager in the world, and really a public intellectual in terms of his contribution to management and understanding markets, these people are all saying the same thing. When I hear that, the first thing I say is, well, all the contrarians are saying the same thing. Is there some more to the story than that? And it sounds too good to be true, right? The dollar's on its way down. China's in descendants. The US dollar will lose its reserve currency status. Something else will take its place. And like you just said, Ray Dalio was really big into trying to turn this into an academic exercise. And so he looked back into history and he said, wonder where this has happened before, right? In my lifetime, I've only seen one global financial crisis. I've only seen one case of leaving the gold standard. Let's look back in history and ask all these smart people at Bridgewater, his hedge fund, and elsewhere in academia, what happened in the past. So he came up with a bunch of examples, and you look back and said, "Well, the previous reserve currency was the British pounds, pound sterling, and before that, it was the Dutch Gilder. So we have we should have two cases, two cycles where we we have at some point those countries were dominant in the world. Financially, especially, but also in the world trade and, and militarily. So that's where you first thought about it. Well, how did they get to be dominant in the first place, and how did they fall? And then you realize, well, hang on, I've only got two other choices. So I only have two other cases here. So I better find some more. So we also found 16th century to 17th century China and a few other cases here and there. But really, it's about I've seen the decline of the U.S. before, and it's happening exactly the same way as it's happened in Britain and in Holland. And so he basically says there's this big cycle, this and super cycle. And there's a few things you need to know about super cycles. And the first is that historians do not think this way. Historians in the 1800s and early 1900s kind of thought, oh, let's create these grand narratives of what happened in history, the rise of the workers and the fall of the workers, the rise of capitalism, all these things. And quickly it was realized that more, as more and more people dug into uh, history, that you can't create huge grand narratives because every case is different. Every case is contextual. Let me just pause
1: there, though, because as investors, we love a markets don't repeat, but they rhyme. I've seen this before. Uh, we've overlaid charts. We do all kinds of things that actually suggest pattern recognition is an important part of the investment world. So, you're saying, hang on a second, maybe it is, or maybe it isn't in, in investing, but certainly in history, historians don't agree that that's a way to look at history.
2: I have a huge empathy for trying to use history to, uh, to apply it to the present and indeed the future. And I think there is definitely some use of that. But when you put a grand narrative under scrutiny, it always fails. We can, come, we can think of a lot of different examples. Each country's reserve currency was the reserve currency for different reasons. I'll go just a little bit into this. The Gilder, Dutch Gilder, was a reserve currency. Why? Because it was one-for-one one backed with gold. Gold was the international reserve currency, not the Gilder. The Gilder was issued by the Bank of Amsterdam, which, by the way, was not a central bank. It was a private bank. And it was an easy way to hold it. So it's a very different idea than making the US dollar a reserve currency. And that's also true of, let's say, for example, the British pound. The British pound was a reserve currency. Why? Because it colonized half the world, and that half the world couldn't use, weren't allowed to use anything else. And it was also backed by gold, not quite one for one, but pretty close to one for one. And so the way that you have to think about it is, if you look at each part of the cycle of each of these countries, there are some similarities on the surface. But when you go deep into it, you realize that each case is completely different. And the reasons why they were supplanted were completely different. And so that's the first thing to think about. And the second thing is when you make a meta history, and this is very common everywhere really, is you want to find the best histories because history is not a science. It's interpreted by people. So different historians interpret the history in different ways, the facts in different ways. And what Dalio did not do in his book was he didn't consult the experts in the field. So, Barry Eckengren, for example, is probably at Berkeley, is probably the best known historian to cover the gold standard, to cover the rise and fall of reserve currencies. And he's nowhere in this book at all. Meta histories themselves are flawed, first of all. And second of all, they're even more flawed if you don't choose the best historians to base your your meta history. Narratives are really good things, right? You're right. We look for patterns. As individuals, we can't help ourselves. (laughs) We look for patterns in the clouds. In lottery numbers, whatever it happens to be. We want to see those patterns. So we really are easily convinced by those patterns. And Ray Delio was too. So really, that's kind of the start of it. So what I'd like to do right now is kind of dig into just a few of the places where context is more important than the narrative. So the cycle goes kind of like this. For some reason, almost always war, the previous dominant hegemon, dominant country, loses its its dominance, and some other country, for whatever reason, ends up in its place. Often, some of the reasons he thinks are education, hard work ethic, better state institutions, et cetera, et cetera. So they have some prosperity. They do things better than everybody else. They dominate. Because they're better, they dominate world trade. Because they dominate world trade, they they need a big military. So they develop a big military to defend their world trade. First of all, that's already wrong, right? Because both Netherlands and Great Britain had a big military, which is why they had a lot of trade, not the other way around, right? It wasn't (laughs) that Portugal had great trade in the 1400s. It was that they were the dominant military seagoing power. It's not the other way around. You got to think of it this way. But then, so anyway, so they start to get ahead of themselves. When things are going up, you borrow money to invest more, normal, and you end up with a debt bubble, right? You end up with, and that debt bubble creates inequality. And that inequality creates trouble, right? Because now the poor people are not winning here. And so they rebel. And his examples are the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution, and actually 1933 in the US, which wasn't a revolution at all. But again, notice that there's not dealing at all with China, Netherlands, mm. or Britain. None of, the countries that, none of those countries had a revolution during those times. Anyway, so then the taxes go up, wealthy people leave, there's a financial bust. To fix the financial bust. You print a lot of money and eventually you have to rest- politically restructure your economy so that someone else now takes. becomes the new hedge and becomes a new power.
1: It seems to me, Rashid, that there's a couple of things that are really important in this. And I think he outlines it. I think you've highlighted this as well, is that war and revolution are a really important component of this change, right? Like if there's going to be a shift, there's sort of war tends to be that moment, if you will. Is that the way the history generally goes and and your observation?
2: So in those particular cases, and you can include the Habsburg Empire before, which was Spain, before it, uh, the Netherlands sort of rose to power, is you're absolutely right. Every one of those cases ended in war and not a small war, like hundreds of years of war in the case of the move from Netherlands to Britain. Like Britain was isolated from the Continental Wars, which is why one of the well, not the only reason. Again, I don't want to do brand narratives either here, <laughs> so no, it's yeah, one yeah. of the reasons why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Britain had two world wars in 30 years to fight, and so that was actually it's. So again, it's kind of it's kind of reversed, right? Wars created our financial system; it allowed someone to dominate, not the other way around. It wasn't that the financial system got so powerful that we went in decline and then we got a war. But anyway, that's a whole different story. But basically, you're absolutely right. So. If we look at the US and where we are in the cycle with the US, we would say that, wow, for the US to lose its dominance, it's not enough just to have a big trade deficit or be a, have a lower GDP growth than a few other countries. It, there needs to be war. And this is by Dalio, by the way, not by me. <laughs> and in his book, he has an amazing array of charts of showing the, the rise and fall of the U.S. Funny though, he doesn't have many charts that show China comparing to China, right? Because what we're talking about here is if someone's going to replace the US as the global hegemon, there aren't many candidates. Right. So it's not the like Netherlands. We're going, default, we're going to default. Yeah, it's not right. the Netherlands. We're going to default to China, right? So right. let's look at that argument that somehow the US is falling, it hit its apogee and is now falling back to Earth, and China's in its descendants. He uses kind of four, four measures. Of the US's fall, I guess. And the first is debt to GDP. And he says, oh, debts are so, private debt is so high in the US because we're borrowing for future generations to fund today's consumption. So you look at the debt to GDP level in the US, it's 150%. So private debt is 150% of GDP. Well, in China, it's higher, it's 200%. <laughs> so if you believe that this is an indicator of decline, which by the way, I do not, then China is in greater decline. The second issue is inequality. So his big thing is that for Netherlands and for Britain and for the U.S., a great sign of decline is we get internal class conflict, well, conflict of some kind, internal conflict. That never happened in Britain or in Netherlands, by the way. So right away, we're in trouble. But let's say in the U.S., we think we see conflict, right? Right. Internal conflict. The trouble is, is that what kind of conflict? Like, it's not class conflict. It's not the poor upset the rich, and then you say, well, okay, so the U.S. has this huge conflict and China doesn't have any conflict at all. And my response to that is, how do you know? Right? There could be huge distrust, dissatisfaction, but it's not allowed. So you won't know till it's, it's, you know, till it's frothed up so far high that it, you won't even see it. So the idea that the U.S. is in decline because it has internal conflict, I actually don't see it as a bad thing. It's actually, in some ways, a good thing. That we know there's a conflict, that people are fighting each other to get certain kinds of laws passed. Mainly, they're not trying to have a revolution, mainly. (laughs) And indeed, the U.S. is reasonably unequal and getting worse. I mean, from a Gini coefficient point of view, it's 10 points worse than Australia or Canada. So for sure, it's not your parents, or your grandparents. American dream is no longer, generally no longer possible, if it ever was. So you might say that's a problem, right? Except that China is as unequal as the US, exactly as unequal as the US. <laughs> like, literally, same Gini coefficient, so same level of inequality. And if you look at wealth measures, like the top 1% or top 10%, they're exactly the same between China and the US. So it's a 10% of the US owns 30% of wealth. It's exactly the same in China. Right. So again, we're talking, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm not saying that these countries are on their way to zero. I'm saying they're not really good at the argument that high inequality and high debt to GDP and high discontent are measures of decline fall apart as soon as you even start thinking about the context and the details of it. Right. And the final one is money printing. Dalio, as you said, right at the very beginning. Everybody loves
1: money printing. He
2: hates money printing, right? Yeah. So do most fiscal conservatives because... They figure, hang on, the state shouldn't be spending money on this or that. And if we let it spend money, it's going to borrow money. And eventually that leads to more money printing, which eventually leads to a declining currency. China's monetary stock is higher than the US per GDP. That is, there's more money printing going on in China than the US. We have to understand how this happens, right? In the US, it's a little more simple. You actually, the Federal Reserve creates reserves for banks out of thin air, and that means the banks can lend more, or it can actually literally buy things, right, literally, with money printed, the, the Treasury can, you know, or the government can, using the Treasury's printing press. In China, it doesn't work that. China, the state bank, banks are owned by the state. The government can just tell the state banks to lend more. There's no Fed, reserves, or anything else needed here. So again, the monetary stock in China is higher than the monetary stock in the US. So. This, all these kind of four points, I'm just trying to show that China in ascendance and US in decline, that the basics of that argument don't fit the facts.
1: The big thing that people like to point out in all of this is that there's this desire for alternative currencies. And we go to the one. Because we're going to take the unaligned country conforming to, you know, federal reserve mandates and so forth. We say, hey, what's the alternative?
2: Issues are twofold. One is a misunderstanding of what a reserve currency actually is. And the second is a misunderstanding of the difference between a flow of anything, a currency, and the stock of a currency, right? So let's start with the first one. There always have been, throughout history, multiple reserve currencies. There is no central bank that's just held one reserve currency. In the 19th century, there were multiple reserve currencies. We know the pound was one of them, and, but Russia held French francs as a reserve currency. It was a second reserve currency. Even now, the US dollars, if you look at central bank holdings, it's got foreign exchange holdings. It's the biggest, but it's not the majority. So they're, right. they're holding euros. They're holding other currencies. The second thing is, building something in another currency is not the same as being a reserve currency. There's no reason we should be building stuff from the U.S. dollar if, if it's not the relevant benchmark. And a classic example I just read yesterday, that the, Russia is selling oil to India. And right. the currency they use is the Emirati Durham, which is U.S. dollar pegged, one for one. <laughs> right? So they could use anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but India doesn't need rubles, and Russia doesn't need rupees. So what do they need? They need dollar-peg dollar stores of value. And then the extent that, do I trust it? Do I believe that if I hold yen, or in the case of Russia, hold rupees, that's a good idea, but that's, that's something that something bad isn't going to happen to my rupees in the future? And we know that, for example, the rupees have been in permanent decline in <laughs> store of value. So you might not want to hold it. So that actually brings us to a really important point here, is that what do we mean by reserve currency? And what makes a reserve currency? The reserve currency has to be a store of value. Right? What does that mean? So gold was a store of value in the past. And it, was, and it was the reserve currency for quite a long time, well, a couple hundred years anyway. And now the US dollar is the reserve currency. It's considered a store of value. The US dollar is the worst currency in the world, except for all the others, except maybe the Swiss franc. But more importantly, if you actually didn't hold your dollars in a mattress and put them in the bank, you'd actually completely hedged your purchasing power globally. So $1 in 1934 buys exactly what $1 does now. It's unbelievably true. I mean, for all everything you hear about how the dollar has lost its value, it just hasn't. And look at the DXY right now. It's at near highs, like for 30, 40 years. This is not a currency in decline. It's quite the opposite. It's been an amazing store of value for 100 years. And don't forget that China didn't need to hold so many treasuries as it does. So there must be reasons why it does so. So that, this is the first one, right? It's a global store of value. The second issue is you need to be a net importer to be reserve currency, at least for quite a long time. So in the case, back to our grand narratives, in the case of Britain, Britain at one point, it's at its height, bought 30% of the world's products. But basically, the bottom line is, these, the sterling is going out, and it's not coming back. Same with the US dollar, right? The US is, the, is buying is the global buyer, and the dollars go out. If you don't buy any, your currency never leaves the country. It can't be a store of value, right? The yen... It's like you need to populate the world with your currency. Hmm. Then, of course,
1: they got to want to hold it, right? But once they begin to hold it, they see some store of value, that works, but if you're a net exporter, what happens? And China's a net exporter.
2: What happens in that case? Well, we need the RMB for, right? It's again, this is a, a difference between flows and stocks. So, so, so that means so
1: China every day acquires more U.S. dollars. Yeah, more and more and more and more U.S. dollars. Yeah. So, this is a really important point. And I think you could postulate, and perhaps she has this view that, hey, we want to go from being a net exporter to balancing domestic consumption. There's a lot of problems with that structurally. But if you don't do that, you're just going to be acquiring U.S. dollars and not exporting one as far as the eye can see, right?
2: Right. So we sort of have to think about why people hold U.S. dollars. You don't have to hold it, right? Nobody's putting a gun to your head and saying, hold the U.S. dollars. And this is the crux right here, is what does the U.S. have that no other country has? Deep, liquid, regulated, reasonably censorship resistant, reasonably efficient, almost perfectly efficient for the, the bond market markets. No other country even comes close. Generally speaking, the markets are completely free and open, highly regulated, backed by the central bank with almost unlimited firepower that's going to step in if something goes wrong. They're not going to let the market fail. And so no other country even comes close. And I think often, a point
1: ignored by many that these sort of structural elements are critical.
2: Absolutely, you're not going to hold the currency unless you trust the people that are holding it on your behalf. You've got to trust in the New York system to trust in the U.S. dollar, and no other country has that that level of trust. And for all of its problems, that's not going away. We sort of started this with you know, is
1: the one ascendant? Is the U.S. dollar in decline. And I guess what we're coming around to in your argument, and we do agree on this, is it's very easy to sort of set up this grand narrative that there's this moment where the US dollar drops in value by some substantial amount and or it goes into some sort of permanent decline. And you want to generally people say you want to own gold because most of those folks tend to be gold bugs. But And some of them, like Ray Dalio, say, "Ah, you really need to pay attention. It's all about China. And I guess your view, and it would be mine, is, well, I'm not saying that the dollar couldn't decline to, DXY couldn't decline to 90 or some other number, but be very careful around this grand narrative in terms of believing that we're in some sort of secular
2: change. Yes. There aren't any facts on the ground that point to a collapse in the US dollar as the reserve currency. That does not mean it can't happen. I'm not a macro predictor. Do your own research, not financial advice. But what we're trying to get at is, do we have evidence of that about to happen? So the black swan could exist, right? But there's no justification for inevitability of dollar decline. And I think that often these very
1: neat theses And really well-produced videos by Ray Dalio seem to hang together, but they are not logically perfect. And we should question that narrative. I think this has been a fantastic conversation. And I really appreciate all of your time, Rashid. I want to get you back to talk about a bunch of other things over the coming months.
2: It's my absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. glad we could have a chat.
0: Thank you so much, Rashid. Hopefully we can do it again. This is tomorrow's news. We'll see you next week.